Welcome back to 10 and 20, the official podcast of the Battle of Franklin Trust, where we talk about interesting aspects of Tennessee history in roughly 20 minutes. My name's Sarah. And my name's Brad. This week, we are talking about a tragic event that took place in Columbia, Tennessee in 1946, just after World War II, when African-American veterans returned home to find that their community was still locked in an era of Jim Crow laws and racial segregation. Before I get into this episode, we would like to say a disclaimer in front of this. We're dealing with a hard history topic here. We're not going to say anything disturbing or graphic, but we're hitting topics that your kids may ask you questions on afterwards. So we just want to let you know in case you are listening here with your children. The story begins in Columbia, Tennessee in 1946, which at the time had a population of about 8,000 white people and about 3,000 black people. Race relations had always been fairly tense in that area, which is just south of us in Middle Tennessee. It's just maybe 30 miles south of Franklin. In the decades prior, two lynchings had already taken place. The most notable lynching was in 1933. It was of a 14-year-old African-American boy named Corey Cheek, who was falsely accused of raping a white girl. Now, a grand jury in Columbia did not indict Corey Cheek due to lack of evidence. However, afterwards, a mob formed in Columbia, traveled all the way to Nashville, where Cheek was staying with a family near Fisk University, and took him back to Murray County. That white mob then brutalized and hanged Corey Cheek, while a mob of onlookers cheered. And that wasn't the first lynching in Columbia. In 1927, a black man was hanged on the courthouse steps for allegedly attacking a white woman. We felt like it was important to tell those two stories because they provide a lot of context for the events we're going to be discussing. The other thing that's important to know, which we alluded to already, is that this is just at the end of World War II, really just months afterwards. Many of the African-American men who had fought in the war, who had seen a less racially biased life in the army, not completely unbiased, but less racially biased than they were getting back home. When they returned back home, they wanted equal rights and equal treatment. These veterans were willing to fight for their country. And then they returned to places like Columbia, Tennessee, which were still in the midst of the Jim Crow era and racial segregation. They found that nothing had changed. And it's good to note too, before we go into this podcast, that it's hard to find information from the sources that we use, such as newspaper articles, reports from civil rights organizations, and even first-hand accounts that really agree with each other. So sometimes it may seem like we're contradicting ourselves, but we're really just giving you multiple options of what happened. This is the kind of event where it's it's really hard to find an unbiased summary of it. But we're going to begin at 10 a.m. on Monday, February 25th, 1946. Mrs. Gladys Stevenson, an African-American woman, walked into the Kastner Knot Electrical Appliance Store on the square in Columbia, Tennessee, to inquire about a radio repair. Her son, 19-year-old James, was a World War II naval veteran who served in both the Atlantic and the Pacific, joined her. Now, Mrs. Stevenson was disappointed by the poor work of the radio repairman, and she told the white repairman, William Fleming, that she was overcharged. 
although one source does say that the store had accidentally sold her radio to another customer. Either way, Mrs. Stevenson demanded compensation for the apparent lack of care that was given to her radio. A fight broke out between them. Accounts differ on what exactly took place, but William Fleming either slapped or shoved Mrs. Stevenson or became verbally aggressive and threatening to her. James, after seeing his mother being attacked, got involved and William Fleming, the worker, ended up going through the plate glass window. When officers arrived, both Stevensons were placed under arrest for disturbing the peace. They did not arrest William Fleming, the repairman. He suffered no serious injuries from his fall. The Stevensons pled guilty and paid a $50 fine to be released. Now, the story could have and maybe should have ended right there. But later that day, the police arrested James Stevenson, the son, because a warrant was brought on by William Fleming's father. The warrant alleged that James Stevenson was guilty for assault with the intent to commit murder. This was a felony charge. Now, a local prominent black businessman, Julius Blair, posted James's bail, and James was able to return home. However, this is where things started to get a little bit... Scary. Scary. That's a good word for it. Scary in Columbia. And we're going to play a recording from the Tennessee State Library and Archives of a woman. Her name was Addie Blair Cooper, and she lived in Columbia during this time. And she talks about what it felt like to hear about James's arrest and the subsequent events happening in Columbia. I remember I was at work, and uh, I was working at uh, Ashton Brothers then. Yeah, and my husband. He came and got me and said, Ed, if you get home, and I'm quite a run around, I do uh, church work. He said, and when you get that thing, said, uh, there's going to be a lot of carrying on here tonight. He said, did you know about what happened up on the screen? I said, yes, uh, someone came in from lunchtime, at lunchtime at the store, and they told me what happened. And uh, he said, well, it's going to be quite a mess, I think. Then you'd be sure to stay home. News of the disturbance spread quickly through Columbia and a white mob began threatening to lynch the Stevensons. Some well-known black business owners secured the release of the Stevensons and asked law enforcement to keep the white mob out of the black community. That community was known as Mink Slide. It was later testified that the sheriff assured the men that measures would be taken to control the mob. By nightfall, though, both communities had split into what was called armed camps. A white crowd had gathered near the courthouse, and about a block south, black citizens, including some military veterans, gathered. African Americans in Mink Slide began blackening their windows to prevent them from becoming easy targets. One newspaper reported the day after that some African Americans were afraid of a lynching mob. Cal Lockridge, a local resident at the time, said that, quote, we heard a white man walked into a store and brought some rope. When the clerk asked him what he wanted it for, he said, we're going to hang some Negroes tonight. About four patrolmen under the orders of the local police chief were sent into Mink Slide. 
someone shouted for officers to stop, and when they failed to do so, shots were fired. The Southern Conference for Human Welfare wrote in their report that there was no way that the carload of men were police officers. One source does indicate, although this source is not written until 1980, that they entered because they heard the African Americans shooting out streetlights to darken the streets. And this is again where there are a lot of conflicting views exactly why the group of men went into the African American community. But either way, gunfire was exchanged between the two groups. Some say that the two policemen were injured, others say that there were four. One says seven people were injured, not clarifying their race, and yet another said that two white men and one African American were injured. Nashville's Globe Independent later stated that a number of whites were killed. However, there were no reports of black or white deaths that night. By the morning of February 26th, about 100 highway patrolmen and 500 state guardsmen had moved into the black community under the orders of Governor Jim Nance McCord. State troopers and guardsmen, without any search warrants, went from house to house and business to business in the black community, seizing weapons and creating wreckage. According to the state encyclopedia, they fired randomly into buildings, sold cash and goods, searched homes without warrants, and took any guns, shotguns, and rifles they could find. One business was the Morton Funeral Parlor, and it says that there were draperies were cut up and lighting fixtures were ripped from their sockets. The letters KKK were written in chalk across one of the caskets. And that picture of the Morton Funeral Home, one of the caskets, will be posting with our information on this podcast. Yeah, it's really it's a really moving picture when you actually see the evidence of what happened there that night. Mm-hmm. Although one newspaper article stated that they were to, quote, search every home in Columbia for deadly weapons because the, quote, fear-crazed Negroes who had believed that the lynching parties were out to get them. Governor Jim McCord arrived in Columbia on February 26th. According to the Columbia Herald, he said that, all violators, white and black, will receive the same treatment. Within a few days, between 70 to 100 African-American males were arrested and were held without specific charges and without bail. Accounts vary as to the exact number. Many were prominent businessmen, including Julius Blair and James K. Morton, owner of the funeral parlor. Now, it's important to note there, roughly 70 to 100 African-American males were arrested, but as far as we can tell, no white people were arrested. And these events now started to make newspapers across the country. The NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, sent in several lawyers to help out the men. They included Thurgood Marshall and the civil rights activist Walter Francis White. They were assisted by two Tennessee attorneys, Z. Alexander Luby of Nashville, and Maurice Weaver of Chattanooga. When they arrived, it was said that Maurice Weaver asked to interview the prisoners and to be present when they were questioned. Both rights were denied by J.J. Underwood, the sheriff of Murray County, and Lynn Bomar, chief of the Highway Patrol. Now, Thurgood Marshall was very notable because he would go on to argue several um, civil rights cases before the Supreme Court, including Brown versus the Board of Education. And he himself eventually served on the United States Supreme Court. The other one we mentioned was Z. Alexander Luby, 
He participated in numerous cases, including the desegregation of schools in Nashville, and his house was actually bombed in 1960. And on February 26th, the mayor of Columbia published this in the Columbia Herald. Proclamation from Mayor. To all people of Columbia, as your mayor, I wish to express to all the sincere regret of all good citizens of the unfortunate incident of the last evening and early morning. In the interest of good government and citizenship, I petition all good citizens of all races to refrain from congregating and be cool and sane and return to normal relations with each other. To assist in avoiding further unnecessary disturbances, members of the State Highway Patrol and the National Guard are temporarily stationed in Columbia to assist in maintaining law and order. These are your officers, and I respectfully petition you to cooperate with them in this undertaking. It seems like Mayor Denham was immediately dismissive of the fact that there was any issues, and it makes sense because this was starting to become a national headline, but Mayor Denham refuted any tensions between the two races in Columbia. He said that conditions had always been excellent between the whites and the blacks. There was, uh, there was a report made by Ernest F. Smith, who was Assistant Attorney General of Tennessee, who said that African Americans were planning an attack on the night of the 25th. But the problem with this account is that there were many false statements. Um, at one point, he called the family the Stevens rather than the Stevensons. And he didn't know if Fleming, the clerk at the radio store, was the owner or the employee. That leads many to think that uh, you can't really take a lot of stock in his account. But he said that there was an attack being planned by the African-American community. And two days later, on February 28th, three African-American prisoners were shot while in jail. And this is the moment where this really becomes a national headline and where this really takes on importance. Because according to police reports, James Johnson, William F. Gordon, and Napoleon Stewart had been left in the sheriff's office at the jail in the same room where unloaded confiscated weapons were kept and two deputies were left to guard them. R.T. Darnell, one of the guards, then claimed that James Johnson grabbed a rifle, loaded it, and started to fire at him. According to one police officer, Bernard Stoffel, who was interviewed in 1989, he said that Darnell was shot in the arm. Other policemen rushed into the room and opened fire on the prisoners, wounding all of them. Now, Stofield also said that when he ran into the police station three or four minutes after it happened, that, and I quote, he found the guns lined up against the wall. Four state troopers and four state officers were in the room and two blacks were lying dead on the floor when I ran up to the room. Now, this account raises a lot of questions and we're going to list some of those. And these are not just questions that we are wondering, but these are questions that people brought up in the days after the event too. Why would policemen keep weapons and ammunition in the same room with prisoners? Were they trying to provoke an attack? Why did the guards not stop James while he was loading the gun? Why could the prisoners not be subdued without being killed? And then finally, what methods of questioning were being used which could drive defenseless prisoners to be so desperate and hopeless in this extremity? And to add to all this, James Johnson and William F. Gorin died on the way to the hospital. The nearest hospital at that time that would admit blacks was in Nashville. That makes it even more tragic. Is they, Some of them could have been saved had they been able to get to a hospital sooner. But of course, all the hospitals in that area were segregated. So they drive them all the way up to Nashville. Napoleon Stewart, 
though he recovered from his wounds, he told a completely different story than the guards. He said the police opened fire on him and his companions without provocation. Now, I guess we can leave it up to the listener to decide which story you find more persuasive, but it seems like Stewart's account was, we were just in the jail and out of nowhere they started firing on us, which would seem to indicate that then the story about the prisoners opening fire or or attempting to fire on the guards was complete fabrication. Either way, there are still many more men in jail at this point in time, and the NAACP Legal Defense Fund's lawyers managed to release all other jailed men except for 26. And some of the 26 were the most prominent black businessmen in Columbia. Before the trial, the Southern Conference for Human Welfare wrote these interesting points in an appeal to the governor of Tennessee. They said, We have just won a war in which Negro and white Americans fought side by side for democracy and the rights of minorities. Are we going to keep faith with these Negro and white veterans? The eyes of the nation and the world are on what we in Tennessee do about the Columbia cases. Our action must be in line with our national ideals of equal justice and opportunity not an outgrowth of old prejudices and outworn antagonisms. We therefore ask the governor and the local and state law enforcement officials to, one, prosecute the members of the white mob who stormed the jail on February 25th. Two, prosecute the officers responsible for the deaths of two prisoners in their custody. Three, release all prisoners who have not been charged with any crimes. Four, guarantee to those who are charged with crime a fair trial in the American spirit and tradition, with all the rights provided by the United States Constitution, and unmarred by any manifestation of the lynch spirit which has brought about this horrible situation. A federal grand jury was convened to investigate the charges of misconduct by the white policemen, but the local all-white jury absolved the officers of any wrongdoing. It's good to know they were investigating the charges of the men who shot. The prisoners? The prisoners in the jail. But the jury just said they're... They didn't do anything wrong. The remaining men were split into four different trials that lasted about 10 months. They were all accused of first-degree attempted murder and assault and battery with the attempt to kill. The case results. 23 men were acquitted by a Lawrence County jury after a venue change was made from Murray County. Thomas Baxter died in jail before his case came to trial. Two men were convicted, William Pillow and Lloyd Kenny, but both were eventually acquitted. Pillow never served jail time, and Kenny served four months. Now, racial harassment continued throughout the trial and afterwards. When the lawyers, Marshall, Luby, and Weaver, left Columbia for the final time, a convoy of patrolmen followed them. The police stopped them twice for, quote, highway violations. The third time they were pulled over, Marshall was arrested for drunk driving, and he was put in a patrol car. Luby and Weaver followed, but eventually... At the local magistrate's office, the charge was dropped. In an interview with Dr. Yolette Trigg-Jones in 1992, she was a former member of the African-American community in Columbia, and she was talking about why it was so hard for African-Americans to speak about the poor race relations in the 1940s in Columbia. And basically, she stated that it was a very middle-class community with very strong middle-class values. She said, They had arrived. They had made it to the middle class. And the race riot was a reminder that very much had changed and that also very little had changed. One historian 
said that the national news attention that the Columbia events received brought the Southern racial conditions and racial violence into the national spotlight. However, there were still many years before the events that made significant progress in civil rights came about. In 1948, the armed forces were desegregated. In 1954, Brown versus Board of Education desegregated schools in America. And in 1955, Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on the bus in Montgomery, Alabama. Martin Luther King Jr. and other leaders began to coordinate nonviolent protests. These protests and other movements grew into the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s. Many people believe the events in Colombia are what spurred this movement. Thank you for listening to our podcast on the events in Colombia. If you have found value in these podcasts and would like to express that, we would like to encourage you to leave a review on iTunes or whatever podcast app is the most convenient for you. If you head to our online store at store.boft.org, you can pick up one of our few remaining 10 and 20 t-shirts. Follow us on Instagram at 10in20podcast or send us an email at podcast at boft.org. As always, stop by for a tour at Carter House or Carnton. You might even get one of the two of us as your tour guide. You never know. Thank you so much for listening. See you in two weeks.